A singer named George Michael once said that you gotta have faith, but he never really told us how. In this episode, I'd like to try to figure that out through God's Word. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. When it comes to faith, anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is going to want more of it. We understand that it is integral to our lives, it is central to everything we do, and ultimately, in its very basic form, it is necessary for salvation itself. And so when we talk about growing in faith or having more faith, we understand it, we say it, we want it, but we don't always understand how it happens or where it comes from or if there's anything that we can do to generate it or to encourage our own faith to grow. Now, when it comes to what faith actually is, we need to be, I think, clear with what we mean when we say faith, because like I said in the intro, you've got musical artists who talk about faith. The world says that you need to have faith. What is it that faith actually means? Now, I'm not going to go too in-depth with this because I've actually got an entire podcast episode talking about what faith is, and I'll try to link that down in the show notes if you want to listen to it. But effectively, what faith is, it's not a feel-good, warm and fuzzy. It's not just believing. When the Bible talks about faith, it is acting and living in a way based on what you believe is true. So if we go back to my original episode on faith, I use the example of a chair. When we are having faith in a chair, we're not just looking at a chair and saying, yeah, that looks like a good chair. We're not just saying, yeah, there is a chair there. We exercise faith. We show our faith in a chair when we actually sit down and prove that we trust that the chair is real and that the chair is safe. And our faith in Jesus Christ is very similar in that we can say that we believe that Jesus is true. We can say that he's worth following, but it's not until our lives actually reflect that that we are actually living by faith and showing faith. Likewise, salvation itself. It's good to say, oh, Jesus Christ lived or Jesus Christ died for my sins, but if we haven't actually placed our trust in that and stopped trying to save ourselves or rely on our own good works or rely on us going to church or things like that, if we haven't actually stepped out and acted out in faith and placed our full faith and confidence of our salvation in Jesus Christ, then it's not true, genuine, saving faith. So understanding that then, that faith isn't a feeling, it's not a belief system, it is a way of living. It is saying, I know that this is true, therefore my thoughts, my words, my actions are going to reflect that I believe that this thing is true. How do we get more of that in our lives? How do we live by faith more? How do we have a deeper and stronger faith that isn't going to waver when life gets hard, when the world gets darker than it is, and things like that? Well, very simply, I think all we have to do is ask for it. Now consider what we see in James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So God isn't complicated. He doesn't create all these hoops that we have to go through. He doesn't make 
it hard to get what we need. If we need wisdom, we ask of God. If we need more faith, we can ask of God, because God is going to give to his children not necessarily the things they want. God's not going to give me a new house, but if I ask for faith and I genuinely want more faith in order to live a life that pleases him and that serves Jesus Christ more, then our Heavenly Father is going to give us that thing. And I think for all of us, we all hit that point in our lives where we just we want more. And maybe even we ask God for more faith. You know, we, we sit and we look at our lives. Maybe we've been saved for weeks or months, or we've been going years and we felt like we're in a dry spell or we're not really moving onward in our faith. And we're just saying, you know, God, I want more. I want to have more faith. I want to not doubt you. And so we ask God for faith. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we feel like we don't get it. We feel like he ignores us or that he is withholding from us something that we genuinely want. And so when it comes to where this faith comes from, you know, do we need to believe harder? Do we need to just be stronger or be better people? Do we need to, you know, maybe read our Bibles more so that God will reward us? You know, where does this faith come from? Well, Ephesians 2.8 is very clear about that. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, Obviously, we often use this verse when we're talking about saving faith, right? The reality that we place our full confidence in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and in exchange give us his righteousness. But that same faith that saves us is the same faith that lets us live every day following our Savior. So when Ephesians is talking about how, you know, we we didn't earn salvation. We didn't get the faith to believe in Jesus by ourselves. It's not that we worked and we are somehow better people because we had faith and someone else didn't. Instead, that faith is a gift of God. It is fostered by God. It's given by the Holy Spirit, and it's not of ourselves. And so when it comes to us wanting more faith for our lives, not to be saved, you know, we're already saved, but when it comes to living by faith, having more faith in God for more than just salvation, but for our jobs, our family, our own health, you know, our world in general. When it comes to living by faith in that way and in trusting and in fully relying on God more, where does that come from? How do we get that? Well, Ephesians is clear that that comes from God. And so at a very, very basic foundational level, we have to realize that if we want to live by faith, it's not something that we conjure up. We don't try to be better people so that we can be more faithful, so that we can have more faith, because that puts all the work on us. And Jesus Christ came to earth to save us from having to earn our own salvation, from having to live righteously. It is through Jesus Christ that we can have faith, both for salvation and for holy living. But where a lot of us, I think, get tripped up is we can understand that, you know, we don't conjure our own faith. It's not by our own efforts that we have faith. But we still sit there and we scream into the darkness, you know, God, give me more faith. Where is it? Why aren't you listening to me? And this is where kind of the meat of this episode is going to be, because I want to share where I believe God grows faith in our lives. And it is always in a way that we don't expect. And sometimes we don't even want because we want faith to be like opening a box. We want to suddenly go from having 10 faith to 20 faith. We want to go from having a little faith in one moment to the very next moment having a lot of it. We want it to be this magic wand that God waves over us to just conjure faith as though it's some substance that we have in our lives. And instead, I think we need to 
kind of see what God shows us and how he grows his people. And kind of the idea, the picture that I want to give us is that of a blacksmith. You know, if you've ever seen a blacksmith work on, you know, the Discovery Channel, their History Channel, you know, they have to heat metal, they have to beat it, they have to shape it, they have to get rid of the impurities, they have to almost make the metal go against what it may want or where it's wanting to go. And instead, it has to be formed according to the blacksmith's desire, his designs for that piece of metal. And so we see this, you know, this idea, this picture in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 10. Now, obviously, this is talking about Israel, but this shows us the character and nature of God and how he grows the faith of his people, how he draws us closer to him. It says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Now, one of my very first episodes was talking about Jeremiah 29, 11, and how we always want to take this idea of, you know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And we want to take it in this prosperity gospel nonsense and say that, oh, God only wants good things for me. He wants me to be rich and happy and healthy. And yeah, God's awesome like that. But when we broke down the context of that verse, we see in Jeremiah the same thing we see in Isaiah, the same thing we see all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. And if we stop and think about it, we see what we see in our own lives. And that is this idea of refinement, of forging, of crafting faith through affliction and struggle and pain. Because in that Jeremiah verse, what was actually happening there? You know, God wasn't just speaking to Israel who were sitting, you know, on nice, prosperous farms. And God was saying, hey, I want you to be happy. God was saying, you are going through 40 years of suffering that I have designed purposefully to give you faith, to bring you back to me. In this passage in Isaiah, the exact same thing. God is letting Israel suffer and struggle, not to punish them or to hurt them but because he loves them and he wants to grow their faith. And now again, this is why I started this episode off by reminding us of what faith means, because faith is acting according to what we believe is true. So when we are trying to earn our own salvation, earn our own righteousness, what we're doing is we're placing faith in ourselves and saying, I believe that I have the power, the capability, the inherent goodness to please God on my own. But that's not what God wants for us. God doesn't want us to try to be our own gods, to be our own saviors. He wants us to be reliant on Jesus Christ and the work he did at the cross. He wants us to be reliant on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ. He wants us to rely on him as our heavenly father to care for us, to give us what we need, to know that he is in control of all and not us, that we do not have any power in our lives to provide for ourselves. God wants us to have that kind of faith where we aren't just saying we believe in him, but our lives reflect what it means to have true, genuine faith that touches every aspect of our lives. And so when we look at Israel, when we look at people in the New Testament, when we look at our own lives, we see that this forging in the in what Isaiah said, in the furnace of affliction, we see that this is done to mold us, to remove our impurities, to shape us in a way that God wants us to be because he knows that it's good and right for us. And what he wants us to look like is a people who doesn't rely on themselves, but relies on God, who lives and walks by faith, knowing that God is who he says he is as our father, as Jesus Christ, and as the Holy Spirit, that God is who he says he is. 
and that we don't just say it with our mouths, but we reflect it with our lives. That is the faith that God wants to develop in us, to grow in us, to forge in us. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen over the course of a week. It is a lifetime of constant refinement and forging. And so really understanding that, that God grows us through affliction and through suffering and that what he wants to develop in us isn't a stronger character where we are better people, but instead we are humble people who know where we place our faith, where we place our trust. Let's talk about kind of what this looks like then. Look at what we see in James chapter one, verses two through four. Now, remember, I started this off by sharing verse five, where he says, you know, if you lack wisdom, ask God. But let's see what he says before that. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we see here that James lays out very clearly and very plainly, which is why I love the book of James, because it's, it's very straightforward. But just very plainly says that it is the testing of your faith that produces endurance. And endurance is this idea of, if you picture a runner, it's the ability to you know, go long distances without tiring, without giving up and, and passing out. You know, it's the endurance not to just have a really big burst of energy and just, you know, do a, a short dash, but instead for a long-term run without faltering, without having to stop. And that's the same idea for our faith is that God produces an endurance in our faith, not by just pouring more faith on top of us, not by protecting us and shielding us from the world, but instead by forcing us to look at where we are truly placing our faith. Does our faith in ourselves really stand up when we get sick, when we lose our job, when you know everything in our life goes wrong? You know, are we really able to save ourselves from our suffering and from our afflictions? Can we really place hope in us? for our joy and satisfaction. Now, temporarily, when God is allowing our lives to go what we think of as well, then yeah, it seems like, yes, we should have faith in ourselves. But we are all just one moment away from losing everything in our lives. And it's at that moment when we're going through suffering, whether it's loss or whether it's something else, whenever we are having our faith tested, when we're having the world ask us, where do you put your hope and trust? That is when God grows and develops our faith because we are being put through a furnace and we are having our false gods and our idols purged from our lives, leaving nothing but our pure faith and trust in Jesus Christ, realizing that all these things that I relied on to make me happy, everything that I thought was saving me, everything that I thought mattered in life actually matters very little because in going through the suffering and in this trial, I realized that all the stuff that seemed necessary, that seemed good, that seemed trustworthy is for nothing. And it's only Jesus Christ who remains, who is worth serving, who can honestly supply my every need. And this is what we see in the life of, I really think, almost every believer that has ever existed. Any believer of deep faith, someone who has truly served God and who lives a life where they are fully relying on God for everything they need and desire has gone through this suffering in one way or another. Sometimes it's major. Sometimes it may seem like just part of an everyday thing. But we know that those who have full faith in God have had that that big moment or just a lifetime of moments where they've gone through the fires, they've gone through the affliction and the trials, and they've had to answer, where am I going to place my faith and trust? Who am I going to rely on to rescue me? You know, For example, think of Noah. We know that he was a man of faith, 
We know that he had faith in God, but we don't really think of what that meant. Because if you read the account of Noah and the life before the flood, it was a world that had a small family who served or believed anything about God. The rest of the world was, it says, filled with violence. And it's this idea of having a cup that is so full to the brim that you can't really fit one more drop in it. That's the world that Noah was following God in. And you got to imagine, he didn't just sit there kind of in his, on his own, isolated from everyone else. He had to live in a world that hated the things of God, that was constantly pursuing their own desires, that was, you know, apparently, if we can imagine, filled with all kinds of death and wanton murder for probably whatever reason struck someone's fancy. And yet Noah and his family endured in the face of a world that was hostile, that hated God that had no resemblance to anything that he believed was true about life. But Noah kept his faith in God, and he obeyed God. And likewise, we can see Abraham. Abraham's faith was tested over and over and over again. You know, whether it was him offering his wife to another man because he feared his own safety, or when he fathered a child with another woman because he doubted God's promise to him. We see that when we think about Abraham and who he is— We don't remember him well because of all of his sin and and mistakes and, you know, acting against God. Instead, what we see is that Abraham's faith came about because of his failures, because, you know, rarely do we see Abraham succeed. And when we do, it's when he's acting in faith with God. But where did this idea come from that Abraham would eventually become this man of faith and someone who is worth us remembering? Well, it's because we see his life in embarrassing detail and we see God growing Abraham's faith through Abraham's own failures, through the struggles that he went through. Or fast forward and go to King David. You know, this is a man who is described as a man after God's own heart. And yet look at everything David went through when he was acting in faith with God, things weren't peachy keen for him. I mean, Saul was constantly trying to kill him and it wasn't God's punishment to David, but we see David's faith in God growing through this adversity, through this trial that he was going through with Saul. And then when David finally did become king, we see that he faced trials of temptations and David didn't always succeed in those temptations. I mean, we see the very famous story of Bathsheba. I mean, David's a guy who didn't you know, look down on a bathing woman and just have the utmost faith in God to just, you know, turn away. He dwelled on it. He acted in a way that got Bathsheba's husband killed in battle so that he could have her and try to cover his own sin. But again, we see God didn't just throw David away. Instead, God grew David through David's own failures, through the struggles he went through, both the times when he kept his faith in God and acted as he was supposed to, and the times where he failed utterly. And as a final example, right now my, ch- my own church is going through the book of Ecclesiastes, which I've shared as one of my favorite books. Uh, this was written by David's son, Solomon. And if you know the story of Solomon, God granted him the ability to be the wisest man in the world. But when we read Ecclesiastes, what we see is that just because Solomon was wise doesn't mean that he used his wisdom to follow God. You know, this is a guy who he built, you know, beautiful structures and gardens. He had hundreds of women for every pleasure he could want to follow. This is a guy who didn't understand self-denial in the least. And we see throughout his life, he pursued his own desires instead of God. 
And at the very end of his life, when he is reflecting on everything he did and all these foolish pursuits that he chased after as a younger man, he sums up everything that he has learned about life and says simply in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion when all is heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. And so on and on, like I said, we see this pattern. Old Testament is you know, a great example of this because it shows us the history of people. We can see in the New Testament with Christ's apostles or, you know, people within the church. We can see it throughout history. We can see it in our own lives. We always grow closer to God because we face struggles and either we fail and God breaks us and brings us back to him like we see with Israel, or we endure and we see that our faith in God is worth holding, that it is true and honest and genuine and not worth abandoning. Because when trials come, when they you know, beat down our door and we feel like all is lost, everything is hopeless, when we turn our eyes to God, we realize that faith is worth keeping. God is who he says he is. He will hold us up. He will carry us through. Maybe things won't go the way we want, but they will always go the way that God needs them to go for our good and for the general good of his people. And so if we take this back to kind of our blacksmith analogy and think about a blacksmith who forges a sword, who beats the metal and folds it and heats it and shapes it how he wants, when do we know that that sword is true? When do we know that it is actually been made well? Not until it's tested. And that's what James is talking about with that endurance. When, str- when trials come, when we have those struggles, God is growing our faith, and it's when we come out the other side loving God more that our faith in God is truly tested. It's when that, That's when the sword is struck and tested in combat to see if it's going to shatter because it's not well made, or it's going to stand up to any attack that comes because that sword was made well. And one of the crazy things about faith is that when we exercise faith, when we actually live and believe that God is who he says he is. We would think that, oh, we should feel really good about it. You know, we should be excited that we did it and we've got faith. But consider an interaction we see between Christ and some of his disciples. So in Luke chapter 17, in verses 6 through 10, we see Christ kind of warning them that, you know, struggles and trials are going to come in this life. You know, not everything's going to be peachy keen and there's going to be difficulties coming. And in response to this, I'm sorry, it was at the start of chapter 17 is when he says this. In verse 5, we see the apostles' response to this. They say, Lord, increase our faith. Now, I love that response because they believed what Christ was saying, that things were not going to be great, that struggles and trials were going to be coming. And as we see in how all of the apostles died, trials definitely did come, and their lives ended badly by human and worldly standards. And so their response to this wasn't to flee. It wasn't to try to be better themselves. They simply replied with, Lord, increase our faith. Help us to understand more so that we can endure this, so that we can live through this. Then in verses 6 through 10, uh, Christ responds with talking about faith. And uh, in verse 6 is the very famous analogy of if we had faith like a mustard seed, we could uproot mountains with a word. Uh, And then he goes on and talks about how he says in verse 7, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. In other words, Christ is saying when, when someone who works for you is, is basically done working with the day, are, 
Are you going to have them come in and reward them extra for what they've done? Are you going to praise them for basically doing what their job is? And in verse 8, he goes on to say, But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me, while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? In other words, the slave in this example is basically just doing what he's supposed to do. He went out to work, and now he is taking care of uh, you know, the needs. And then in verse 10, he says, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So really think about where Christ is placing this story of kind of the faithful slave and how he responds to his master. The apostles had just said, Lord, increase our faith. And Christ is basically pointing out that when you live by faith, when you do the things that you need to do or that you ought to do, it's not going to be a praiseworthy thing. You're going to endure simply because that is what you're going to do. Faith isn't something praiseworthy about us, and that's something we really need to to understand is that when we have faith, it's not because we are so faithful, but because God himself is faithful and has simply shown us the truth so much that we can live and respond as though it is true. But it's God who is good. It's God who is faithful. It's God who is great and not us. And that is the crazy thing about faith is the more of it that we get, the less that we actually look at ourselves, the less that we find hope and value and praise within ourselves. because all praise goes to God because we realize the more faith we have, the less that it can possibly come from us because it is purely us simply almost acting on instinct. We know that God is who he says he is. He has shown himself time and time again, just like we see with Israel. God showed himself in the reality of who he was to Israel. And because they realized who God was, then they could live by faith. They could act in faith. And we're the same way. When we want more faith, when we want to live and act in faith, all we're really saying is, God, I want to live knowing that you are who you say you are. And that is honestly an incredibly difficult thing to just have happen immediately. And that's why I started this off by saying that, you know, faith isn't this thing where Jesus says abracadabra and suddenly we are faithful people because God being good and being who he is wants to grow our faith, not by just granting it to us like a a rich parent just giving their kids an unlimited credit card, but instead by allowing us to go through those trials and tribulations in our life, by allowing us to suffer, not to punish us, not because he you know, has fun hurting his people, but because that is how we grow. That is how we find ourselves backed into a corner and we have to choose. Am I going to follow God or am I going to follow my own desires? Am I going to follow the things of the world? Because when things are going well in our lives, when things are peachy keen, when things are comfortable, when things are easy as a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't have to make those decisions. I mean, Honestly, look at the church today. Look at the state of of Christianity in the world today. It is easy to be a Christian as long as you toe a certain line. But it's when we have to stand up for the, the hard things of God's word that we are looked down on and that our faith is call, called into question. And that's when we have to say, am I going to follow the truth of God's word no matter what the world is saying to me? Or am I going to compromise what I believe to be true so that things can be easier for me, so that the world will think better of me. And that is one of those moments that we face today. 
sometimes on a daily basis where we have to say, am I going to follow the things of the world? Am I going to be a friend of the world to be well thought of, to be respected? Or am I going to be faithful to God and follow Jesus Christ at any cost? You know, I mean, what do we see in James 4, 4? At this point, if you've been with this podcast a while, you should have this verse memorized. But James 4, 4 talks about how, you know, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility or enmity towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is talking about our faith. Where are we placing our trust? Where are we placing our hope? And so we have to realize that a life spent chasing after Jesus Christ, after wanting to live holy lives that please him and wanting to be good and faithful servants of him, it's not going to be an easy life. It's not going to be simple. It's going to involve a lot of burning away those things in our lives that at the moment we may think are good and necessary, but because God loves us and he desires only the best things for us, he will remove those things in our lives that we are holding on so tightly that we cannot honestly live and act in faith in who we believe he is. Because oftentimes we we think about the things in our lives like a baby wanting to suck on a double A battery. You know, if you've ever dealt with kids at all, they want to stick everything in their mouths except the thing they're supposed to actually have. You know, when it comes time to, you know, give them the baby food or whatever, even sometimes a bottle, unless they are starving and desperate, they will put anything in their mouth they can except the thing that they really need. And so as parents, as caretakers, what do we do? We remove that thing that they think they want so badly but we know is dangerous for them. We remove it despite their screaming, despite their crying, not because we're big bullies, but because we love them. And likewise, we will sit there sometimes for an hour trying to feed a child because we know they are hungry. No matter how much they fight it, no matter how much they don't want to eat that food, because we love them and know they need it, we're going to make sure they get what they need. And that's how God relates to us. God loves us so much that he gives us absolutely everything we need. And he takes away those things that we may think we want and think we need, but are poisonous, not just to our bodies, but oftentimes to our souls. You know, whether it's a relationship, whether it's money or fame or power, or even just our comfort, these things seem good. And we see people in the world enjoying them. And so we think, I want this. This is what I need to be happy. But when we do that, what we're doing is we're placing faith in the world. We're being a friend of the world and saying, you have what I need. You are my source of satisfaction. You are my source of having all my wants and desires fulfilled. You are where I find my identity. And God knows that that is so bad for us that he will give us the faith to pursue truth in who he is. And a lot of times that's going to come through the fires of affliction It's going to come through struggle and trial where we are holding on to our idols so tightly. We don't want to let them go. We can't let them go. But because God loves us, he will teach us why we have to let them go or he will rip them from our hands if he has to. But God will do what is necessary to increase our faith. So if you're sitting there now, if you're listening and you're saying, you know, God, I want faith, but not like that. Just remember the God that we serve. We don't serve a bully. We don't serve a God where we're gambling and hoping that it's worth it. We know that God is worth it. And I just want to end this with what we see in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, which says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. 
So if you want a deeper faith, if you recognize that you need a deeper faith, and that's honestly to anyone listening, because we're never going to reach a point in our Christian walk where we're like, all right, that's good. I've got enough faith. I, I've hit my maximum. I can't handle anymore. We, we will need more and more faith until the day that we die, whether that's tomorrow or whether that's in 50 years. Every day we need more faith, and God is going to grow our faith even more. And so if you want that faith, ask God for it. Genuinely tell him that you want the faith to follow him. But understand that God's not just going to hand you more faith and suddenly you'll find yourself a more faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Your faith is going to come at the expense of everything else you're placing your faith in. God's going to teach you how to put off your faith in false things and in worthless things so that you can put on faith in him, so that you can trust him every day more and more with your life. And at the end of the day, all we can do is trust that whatever God does to grow our faith, it's good because God knows better than we do. What we may think is necessary in our lives, God may see as poison. So trust him, love him, be excited and know that whatever happens with a trial you're going through now, a trial that you've already gone through and you're waiting to see why God did it, or a trial that you're going to go through in the future, whatever God brings into your life, whatever struggles, whatever afflictions, just know that we serve and love a God who is sovereign. He is in control. Things are not random. Things are not outside of his power. If God allows suffering into our lives, or if we are like Solomon and it's not suffering where God grows our faith, but instead having plenty and seeing that all the money and relationships and power and fame and comfort amounts to nothing at the end of our lives, whatever way God uses to grow our faith, just trust that because he is good and sovereign, if we're going through it, it's because he loves us and has something so much more glorious for us at the end of it. So trust him and love him and serve him and know that what we read in Romans 8.28 is absolutely true, that God works out all things for the good of those who love him. It may not be according to our wants. It may not be according to what we think we need, but everything that God is doing Everything he has done and everything he will do is preparing us for a greater glory and a greater love for Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. This is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support this podcast, you can visit me at patreon.com slash onward in the faith. I hope this episode helps you keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.